0: Alright, well, big people, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter nine. And the title of the message is Listen to God's Chosen Son. Luke nine, twenty-eight to thirty-six. We'll get to that in a minute. But I'll pose the same question to you, big people, that I pose to the kids. Why is it important for us to listen to God? Why is it important to listen to his instructions? Do we believe that he cares for us? Do we believe that he knows what is best for us and that he has told us what is best for us? As children of our father, are we listening to what he tells us? Specifically, are we listening to what he tells us about his son, Jesus? Or do we, like Peter in our passage today, think that we have a better way of doing things? Is it thy will be done, Father, or is it my will be done when it comes to the cost of discipleship? To denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following Jesus as James walked us through last week. We are going to be increasingly confronted with these types of questions as we get further into Luke's gospel. Just to kind of give you a snapshot of where we're at in that, um, this week and next week we'll be in Luke. We're actually going to get to Luke 9.50, which is kind of the the breaking point in Luke. Uh, I started, we'll talk about that more next week, but... From Luke 9:51, the whole focus goes to Jesus going to the cross in Jerusalem. So we're going to get to that point, and then we're going to break for the summer. We're going to take 12 weeks in the Psalms this summer, so uh, looking forward to that, and that's going to be uh, exciting to get back in the Psalms like we did last summer. And then in the fall, we'll come back to Luke. So we'll be coming coming back into Luke around the end of uh, chapter 9 and see how far we get. Uh, so 24 chapters but well, we've been in Luke's Gospel since November. Now, this is the 30th week in Luke. And again, we're only 9 chapters in out of 24. But I think the benefit of taking it slow and, and really slowing down and digging in, digging in is that we've had plenty of time to address some of these major themes that we see in Luke. And we've had, been able to kind of address them from many different angles. Today's passage is a great example of why we need to really zoom in closely. We need to take a slow and steady and detailed approach to our reading and our study of Scripture. Also, at the same time, we need to be able to to back up, to zoom out, and to get the big picture of what's going on, not just in Luke's gospel, but in the entirety of redemptive history. And this is one of those passages that really gives us an amazing glimpse into that whole arc of redemptive history. So we're looking today at the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, this is one of those passages that every time I get to it and I read it, I always feel kind of intimidated by it. Like I feel like I kind of understand it, but I, I kind of don't understand it. Like there's a lot going on. And there are really, there's a lot of layers to this. And I think that's why sometimes it can be difficult uh, to to comprehend and figure out what's going on. Uh, and if, you just, if you're just reading, right, if you're just like, you got... Luke chapter 9 in your daily Bible reading plan, and you just plow through the whole chapter in, you know, however many minutes it takes you, and you just read through the transfiguration and you don't really stop and, and think about what's going on. It's, it's one of those things that it, you can just kind of pass by it, right? Uh, but we don't want to do that. Um, so there is a lot to uncover here, and I think this is, uh, it's, this is not like the toy that you just pull out of the box and it's all ready to go, right? This is the one that has all the funky pieces, and you got to like untwist all the wires and Got to get out the, you know, you got to get out the utility knife and start hacking away and try not to cut your finger off and all the things you do for your kids. But um, this is kind of like that, right? This is this is pulling apart those layers. This is doing that hard work to kind of figure out what's going on. So we're going to try to unpack some of these layers today as we look at this passage and see what's going on here. Now, in saying that, okay, please hear what I am not saying. I'm not saying the Bible is some like mysterious, hard-to-figure-out thing that you need like some special tool, right? You don't need a seminary degree to be able to figure out what the transfiguration is about, right? That's that's not what I'm saying. Um, And there's also, I'm also not saying that there's some like mystical hidden interpretation in every passage. Like we got to go, you know, looking at all these weird things and there's some like crazy interpretation that's gonna like change our lives. That's how cults start, okay? We're not, we're not doing that. But we do want to be good students of God's Word, right? We want to take the time, we want to slow down, we want to dig in, and we want to see what's going on here. So we need to read carefully, we need to pray, and we need to pay attention to the context. Context is king here, okay? So here's how we're going to approach this passage. If you're taking notes, there's kind of four different levels. We're going to read through it first, and we're going to just kind of briefly summarize the events at a surface level, just like like, here's what we read, here's what's happening. Uh, as they're recorded, assuming that we don't really have any like cultural insight or, or historical background, this would be like scriptures get translated into a new language and you hand to someone the Bible for the first time. Like they could read this and be like, okay, I can like picture what's happening here, right? I don't know who Moses and Elijah are, but okay, there's like, there's these three guys on a mountain, these six guys on a mountain and something's happening, okay? And we'll look- we will look at a little of the context from the previous sections in that part. Second layer, okay, we're going to dig down another layer. We're going to walk through the Old Testament parallels, and we're going to look at the significance of what the Old Testament parallels are here in this passage. I really think this is the key, that if you just if you just breeze through these things, this is what you're going to miss, okay? So we do need to understand these things. Then we're going to walk through the parallels in Luke's gospel, some of the kind of the connecting themes and the overall picture of what Luke is trying to communicate. And then we're going to talk about the significance for us today in the here and now, so kind of that fourth level down is like, okay, we just looked at all this stuff, so what, right? What does this mean for us in the here and now? All right, so let us listen, let us pay attention to God's holy and inspired word as we read Luke 9, 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray again. Father, thank you for your word. May we listen to it. May we listen to it to your Son. May we listen to what you have revealed to us in the Scriptures. And God, may we be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first thing we're going to do is look at this account that we call the Transfiguration. Again, we're just going to look at it on a kind of a surface-level reading. Luke begins here with this time marker. He says, now about eight days after these sayings. If you've Paid attention as we've gone through Luke, most of the sections begin with some type of time marker on the next day or something like this, eight days later. So this is something that frequently happens in Luke. So here, eight days after these sayings, so okay, what sayings? That's probably an important marker here, right? Well, in the section just before this that we saw last week, and we'll we'll get into this a little bit later, but we see... Uh, Peter's confession of who Jesus is. We see Jesus talking about uh, needing to be rejected and be killed and raised on the third day. And then we, he talks about taking up uh, their crosses and following him. And he, in the end, in verse 27, he talks about some of them will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So all of these things were just told to them. And now they come to this event that Peter, or Luke is connecting these two things to each other with this time marker another thing we see is that this is a prayer meeting that happens on the mountain. Uh, Jesus takes his disciples up on the mountain to pray, and uh, this account actually occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the synoptic gospels. Luke is the only one who mentions the prayer, so, and that's something that's very consistent with Luke's writing. He's, He's constantly talking about how Jesus prayed. Now, obviously, Matthew and Mark aren't saying, oh, well, Jesus never prayed, right? But the way Luke emphasizes Jesus' ministry, one of the things that he's constantly focusing on is the prayer life of Jesus. So that's an important thing here. And then we have this magnificent account of Jesus' face and his clothing radiating his glory as Moses and Elijah, these two majestic Old Testament figures, appear, and they talk with Jesus about his departure at Jerusalem. Again, something that if we're just reading this on the surface level, that might sound kind of strange. Like, okay, what's what's going on? Who are these guys? What are they talking about? Next, we see the disciples falling asleep during the prayer meeting, uh, which is pretty typical of them. But they wake up just in time to see Moses and Elijah departing. Peter then jumps into the refs to the rescue, offers to make some temporary shelters for Jesus and, and Moses and Elijah. And suddenly this cloud comes, and this cloud appears, and it covers them, and a voice speaks out of the cloud, telling them who Jesus is, and telling them that they are to listen to him. Then Moses and Elijah vanish, and then Jesus is left there all alone. Luke concludes with a note about them keeping silent and not telling anyone what they had seen. Okay? Pretty simple on the surface, right? Just, that's exactly what we just read. And as strange as this might sound, right, this event, um, I think we can imagine it taking place, right? Um, James joked the other day when we were talking about this passage that this would be a great week to have a fog machine at the church, right? So we could like have that cloud. And actually, you know, I could, I could get five other guys up here and we could kind of, we could shine some bright light on whoever was Jesus and we could like get a fog machine and we could kind of recreate this event, right? I mean, it's, it's not that hard to, to just picture this in your mind, right? To picture this happen. We're not gonna do that, but we could, right? We could do that. Um, Again, surface level reading, pretty easy to understand. But if we've been paying any attention in Luke's gospel up to this point, we know that there's always more going on under the surface, right? There's always more than meets the eye. And we've seen it from the very beginning with the songs of Mary and Zechariah celebrating Jesus and and John the Baptist's birth. We've seen the presentation of Jesus in the temple with Simeon. We've seen Jesus' temptation. We've seen him preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. All of those accounts are full of quotations from the Old Testament, and they all point to who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish. But if we don't understand those references about him, if we don't understand why those things are being quoted, we can't really make sense. So we need to get under that first layer, right? We need to dig a little deeper and kind of see what's happening underneath here. So for us as Christians, the Old Testament is not optional reading, right? It's not like, I just don't really understand all that. I'm just going to stick with the New Testament. Like I said, it's not easy reading, but we can't just flip to... You know, you can't just flip open and made this argument before it's been a while. But when we were back in, in Genesis, the, entire, the whole New Testament starts with Jesus Christ, right? This is, the, this is the testimony about Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The very first line in your New Testament forces you to look backwards and say, okay, what's this talking about, right? So we have to be able to understand that backstory. We got to be able to read that entire backstory. I might have mentioned a couple weeks ago um, that we've been watching the Lord of the Rings uh, series, and just on Friday night, we finished the last movie, uh, and we, I, for me, like, I never read the books as a kid. I didn't even know it was a thing, like, wasn't on my radar. Um, didn't know any of the backstory. When we, our first year that we lived in China, we did, like, a marathon. All, we watched all three Lord of the Rings movies in one day. Me and a group of guys, and I was like totally lost. I had no idea what was going on because I hadn't, I didn't know the story. I hadn't watched, you know, any movies before. And now we just over the last six weeks, we watched the three Hobbit movies and the three Lord of the Rings movies. And to to get all that backstory and to understand what's going on, and to now to watch them and be like, now my kids are asking all the questions, you know, and I'm like, okay, like I can kind of explain this. Um, but I had, to, right, I had to go back, and I had to get that backstory, and I had to understand what was going on before I got into the main, you know, the main movies or the movies I've already seen and didn't understand. Now it's like, oh, that all, that all makes sense. And that's how we need to approach the scriptures. We need to go to that backstory. We need to be prepared so when we get to Jesus, right, we, it's not just like, wait, what's going on here? God has prepared. He's already written that story, and that arc of redemptive history begins to make sense as we get into the New Testament. So if you're like kind of just new to reading the Bible and struggling to figure things out, and if you've read some of the Old Testament and find it hard to understand, that's okay. Keep on. Keep, keep pressing on. Um, and it's that's really important that we that we stay faithful and, and dig in there. So, but enough about that. Okay. The second layer that then that we need to to unpack is that background, that Old Testament background and imagery that we find here. So again, there's a lot here. I'm not going to be able to dig in very deeply into all of this, but I'll give you some scripture references if you want to write them down. Uh, I'd encourage you to go and look up these passages and read them on your own. Uh, first thing we see here is the shining face of Jesus and the glowing of his clothing, which literally translated it means that his clothing flashed like lightning Uh, And this imagery has all kinds of parallels in the Old Testament from Moses' face shining in Exodus chapter 34, after he comes down the mountain, um, comes down from Mount Sinai after getting the 10 commandments, you could go to 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 and read about Paul kind of talking about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant in that way. A lot of great parallels there. Uh, Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God in Ezekiel chapter one, Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 10, there's a lot of parallel imagery. And then that's all looking backward. Looking forward, we see this same imagery in John's vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. So we have, this, we have this backward-looking imagery to the glory of God manifest in the Old Testament. We have Jesus here, right? And then we have this forward-looking. So really, again, this whole arc of redemptive history, there's this theme of, of God's glory shining in these, these amazing images, Then we see the appearance of Moses and Elijah, these two giant figures from the Old Testament who both had encounters with God on mountaintops. Okay, so this is very significant here that Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus on top of a mountain. Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets, kind of the the whole Old Testament, right? These guys represent all the writings of the Old Testament. And there is also tremendous significance of these two figures as they both pointed forward in their lives and their ministry. To Jesus' coming. Uh, Moses pointed to Jesus' first coming as the greater prophet to whom the people must listen. We'll get to that in a little bit. And then Elijah, whose ministry points to the second coming and the end of days. So you really kind of have this whole, again, it kind of runs the whole gamut of how Moses and Elijah are, are pointing forward to Jesus. And then notice the discussion that Moses and Elijah are having with Jesus in verse 31. It says that they are speaking of his departure. Now, if you have the ESV, look at the footnote on the word departure. What does it say down below? Exodus, okay? That word there, the Greek word, is literally exodos, okay? It means like the way out, the path out. Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about his exodus. Well, what does that make you think of? Moses and the exodus out of Egypt, right? So Moses, this towering figure who led God's people in their literal, physical exodus out of slavery in Egypt, and Elijah, whose departure was not a physical death, but he was carried up in heaven in a whirlwind with chariots of fire, okay? These guys are here talking about Jesus' departure, talking about his exodus. So there's tremendous imagery going on here just with the language that they're using. So it's pointing very clearly to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And then there's this cloud that comes and overshadows them, which also has many parallels in the Old Testament. After the Exodus, God leads his people in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night as they're wandering around. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24, it says that a cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Moses was actually in that cloud, which represented the Shekinah glory of the Lord's presence. He was in the cloud for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't think we probably think about that a lot when we think about that imagery of Moses on the mountain. He is in the presence, he's encompassed by this cloud of God's glory the entire time, 40 days and 40 nights. And then the if you remember the end of the book of Exodus, it actually ends with that cloud coming and filling the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. So there's this picture in the Old Testament of God coming and physically dwelling in a place with his people in this cloud, right? His glory comes in the form of this cloud and fills this tent in this tabernacle, and it's this amazing picture of how God has led his people out and how he is is now dwelling with them. And why is this imagery important here? Well, now the presence and the glory of the Lord comes down on this mountain of transfiguration, and these disciples see it, and they are afraid, right? They are rightly afraid. But then comes what I think is the pinnacle of this event. I think this is the main thing that we are to focus in on. This is really the key that unlocks all of this mysterious imagery and the grandeur of these Old Testament events. The cloud doesn't just descend, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. The Father speaks from the cloud. And to whom does he speak? The answer to that question ties together the second layer that we unpacked regarding Old Testament imagery, and the third layer, which is the context of Luke's gospel, especially what comes just before this in chapter 9. But let's back up a little bit further before chapter 9 first. Let's go back a little earlier in Luke to Luke chapter 3, Jesus' baptism. Do you remember the scene there? Jesus comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And the Father speaks. What does he say? You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. To whom is the Father speaking here? He's speaking to Jesus, right? He's confirming who Jesus is and what he has called him to do. What about here at the Transfiguration? Who is, it, who is he speaking to here? No, who's, who is the voice speak, speaking to? The disciples. He's speaking to the disciples here. Why is that significant? Because this statement from the Father, this is really a summary of what Luke's entire gospel is about. We talked about this in the very beginning, and we've been continuing to come back to it. There is a twofold emphasis in Luke that Luke continues to hammer away at. The first thing is, Who is Jesus and what has he come to do? That's the first emphasis that Luke is just hammering over and over. Who is Jesus? What has he come to do? The second is, how should we respond? Okay, it's not enough just to know who he is and what he's done. We need to know how we should respond. And I think these questions are reflective of the basic approach to life that I believe we are all hardwired to take. Now, this doesn't always... Work out well or look pretty because the effects of the the effects of the fall and our fallen condition But we are all basically confronted with the question of the indicative So we're gonna talk about we've talked about this the indicative and the imperative. Okay, the indicative is just what is what is true, right? What's true about the world? What principles should guide what I do? Where do meaning and purpose come from? These are questions of morality and destiny and no matter how you shake it, the most secular, God-denying worldviews and individuals are still trying to answer these basic questions, right? What is? What is? Like, what's this all about? What's, what's going on around me? Everyone's trying to answer that question. And once we've intep- attempted to answer that question, to answer the indicative, what is, then we must move on to the imperative, right? Right? Because if nothing is true, if I don't have some type of framework, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? So the imperative is the so what. It's what do I need to do now in light of what I believe to be true? And I would argue that every person who's ever lived with proper cognitive functioning, right, in the history of the world has confronted these two questions. Like, what's going on in the world and, and what should I do in response to that? This is, it's inescapable. And I think we all have these basic assumptions about the way the world works and, and how we ought to live and what we believe to be true. Um, you see this kind of play out in life stages. Um, you see it in the, the angst of a teenager asking, uh, what am I going to do with my life, right? What am I, what's this all about and what am I going to do with my life? So that's a, a forward-looking focus, right? You see it in the midlife crisis person, right? Like, what have I done with my life? Right? They're looking backward, and then they're but they're still saying, "Well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life?" All right? There's kind of this existential crisis of like, "I got to figure something out here." Right? And then you have the person really that might be kind of in their last days, and all they can do is really, I mean, all they can do is look back and reflect on what's been. I mean, they're if they're looking forward, hopefully it's to eternity and the joy of being with the Lord, but. It's, all, it's a reflection, right? It's a looking back. It's like, what have I believed my whole life, and how have I lived my life, right? So at all those different stages of our life, we're wrestling with those questions. What is true, and, and what, do I have to, what do I have to do in light of that? Again, I, you know, with your non-Christian friends or, you know, secular coworkers, I mean, it's a pretty simple, pretty simple thing to kind of get at some of their presuppositions, like what they believe about the world and what they believe to be true. Like, because you experienced those same questions too, right? Just, it's a pretty non-confrontational question to ask. Like, well, what do you believe about the world and how should you live because of it, right? Well, this idea that there's assumptions about the way the world works and how we ought to live, this has been pretty evident in Luke 9 so far. Two weeks ago, we saw Herod utterly perplexed by Jesus in verses seven through nine. Some people were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, speaking about Jesus. Others said that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the prophets of old had arisen, maybe Moses. But Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is this? The same question the disciples asked in chapter 8 when Jesus calmed the storm. Who then is this? that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Last week, Jesus asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? They say John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets, kind of same as what Herod was saying. But then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Make no mistake This is the unavoidable question that confronts every one of us. From Herod in his palace with all his worldly goods, all his worldly comfort and security, all the way down to the ragtag group of fishermen that are standing there on this mountain shaking in their boots. And Peter, back in verse 20, responded correctly to Jesus' question. He said, The Christ of God. And he was right. But do his actions here match that profession? That's hard to fault Peter here. He's walked with Jesus for a while. He's seen some pretty incredible miracles. He's been rescued from a deadly storm. But this event here is taking it to a whole new level. I said that we could come up on the stage and maybe reenact this, right, with a fog machine and some bright lights if we wanted to. But you, can't, you guys would not feel the experience watching that, that these guys felt on the mountain, right? You can't reproduce that experience. None of us have seen the majesty of God's glory in that way. Again, you can imagine the event taking place. But unless Jesus returns on the clouds in his full glory in our lifetime, which we all long for and hope that he does— We will never know what was going through Peter's head in this moment. We will not have that type of experience. And I think it's really crazy that Peter even opened his mouth in the first place, that he even spoke to Jesus. Um, I feel like I can imagine him like turning to James and John and saying, like, is this really happening? Right? Like, what is going on here? But alas, it's Peter. And Luke tells us at the end of verse 33 that He did not know what he said, right? Not knowing what he said. And again, this is either because he was maybe just waking up from a deep sleep there, or because he still didn't have a clear grasp of who Jesus was. Probably some combination of the two. But Peter, in his Peter way, he asked Jesus if he could make a tent this temporary shelter, if he could make a tent for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Again, there's all kinds of Old Testament imagery here with the tent or the tabernacle. You saw it at the end of Exodus. Uh, Hebrews chapter eight and nine talk about Jesus being the true tabernacle. In John chapter one, starting in verse 14, John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of, as the only son of God of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when he says here, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's speaking there about Jesus' incarnation. The word dwelt in John 1 is actually, it's the verbal form of the word that Peter uses here for tent. So we can actually translate that word that says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He said Jesus came, the presence of God, that before dwelt in this physical place that moved around from place to place, right? Jesus has come now and embodied that. Jesus is the new and true tabernacle, and the glory of God is with us. So you have that parallel, but he also says, which I think John is saying here in John 1, which I think he's referring to the transfiguration, he says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in 1 John chapter 1, John uses the same language about having seen Jesus' glory, because he was there and he saw it. The point is here that Peter totally misses the point. Jesus did not need Peter to try and build a temporary shelter for him. And I think part of the folly too is that Peter says, I'm going to build three tents, right? I'm going to, Jesus and Moses and Elijah, I'm going I'm to put you all together. I'm going to lump you guys together, and I'm going I'm to build these tents for you. I think there was some folly in that. But notice the response to Peter's folly. I love this. Jesus doesn't even respond to Peter. The Father speaks from the cloud. This is my Son, my chosen one. He answers that indicative question, those questions. Who is Jesus and what has he come to do? The Father answers that right here. Was it it just enough for Peter to have made that confession with his lips? Was it just enough for the Father to confirm the identity of his son, his chosen one? No, that was not enough. There must be a response. Peter, listen to him do what he tells you after your confession that he is the christ of god did he not tell you to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow him that is not a suggestion peter you must do what he tells you if you are going to follow him and there are two more amazing parallels and references the first one, which I think makes this entire passage just incredible, is Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Moses, listen to what Moses said to the people of Israel. Speaking of a future day, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Okay? He doesn't just say, hey, one day down the road, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to do a bunch of cool stuff, right? No, God is going to raise up a prophet like me from among you. You need to listen to him, okay? So here's Moses on the mountain who made that through the Spirit, right? Made that proclamation, made that prophetic proclamation to the people of God. Here Moses is next to Jesus. No word to Peter. God doesn't talk to Moses and say, hey, good job, Moses. You know, getting the people out of Egypt and, and coming here and hanging out with my son. On the Listen to him, right? Listen to Jesus. This is what it's been about the whole time. This is what you've been pointed forward to this whole time. Listen up, boys, right? This is... My son, listen to him. The next parallel is in Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Uh, you can turn there if you want, about six verses. Um, otherwise, I'm, I'm going to read it here. But Second Peter chapter 1, okay, remember? Peter is writing this, okay? The one who was on the mountaintop with Jesus. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Hello. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the transfiguration, right? He saw his majesty, he saw his power and his coming. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter gives his personal testimony here. And then listen to this. This is so important, okay? I could stop right there, and I don't think we would get the point of why this is so important if we just stopped right there. Remember, listen to him. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Peter's saying, don't take my word for it, right? Right? I'm not writing this because just to give you an autobiography about my experience on the mountain. I'm saying that that happened to me, and I was told to listen to Jesus, and I'm telling you to listen to Jesus, right? Peter's saying, don't just, it's not just about the experience, right? It's not just like you gotta have this mountaintop experience. Listen to God's word. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Listen to him does not just, was not just in that moment for these three disciples on the mountaintop, right? Okay, guys, listen to him, you know, and whatever he tells you in the next week. No, this is for all followers of Jesus for all time, and it's we have it here in his word, Right? That's exactly what Peter is saying here in 2 Peter 1. God has spoken to us through his Son, and we have this word, we have this prophecy that's not from men, it's from him. And you need to listen to it. And we need to listen to his word, brothers and sisters. The good news for us, just like for Peter, who messed up tremendously is that it's not our perfect obedience that saves our souls from sin and death. It's not not because you have a perfect record of listening to Jesus and his word. For Peter and the disciples, there was still a long road to walk after this event, wasn't there? They were going to go through some serious trials. And if the tradition is correct, how Peter's life ended, right, being crucified upside down, man... These guys would follow Jesus. They'd follow him all the way to Jerusalem, where he would accomplish the exodus that was spoken of here. He would go to the cross, and he would lay down his life, and he would accomplish the greater exodus, the deliverance of our souls from bondage to slavery and sin. Again, Peter would deny Jesus along the way. All of the disciples except for John would flee in fear for their lives as Jesus went to the cross But that did not stop Jesus from pursuing them after his resurrection. Peter's folly here in trying to protect Jesus and keep him safe on the mountain, and his unbelief in denying him, are certainly relatable experiences for us in our walks with the Lord, if we are honest with ourselves, aren't they? I don't know what the last two months have been like for you. If you're anything like me, there have been moments where you've probably listened to Jesus well. And there's been plenty of other times where you've listened more to yourself or to other voices. And I'm not going to pretend that us just being back together again is just going to magically fix everything just because we're we're back together again for corporate worship. I'm not going to wave some, you know, wand and, and put it all back together. There's still a lot of Uncertainty surrounding our world from a human perspective, right? There's still a lot of brokenness. You're not gonna walk out these doors and oh yeah, like everything's great again, right? We're going into a hostile world, we're we're leaving here where we're prone to forget the things we've heard, right? But one thing has not changed in all of this. Jesus is still on his throne. He is still King of kings and Lord of Lords. He's still coming back on a cloud to display the glory of God for every eye to see. And he still asks us to answer the question, who do you say that I am? And he still demands that we listen to him. So if you are here today and you're a Christian, nothing has changed in that regard. I hope you have longed for this day, when we could regather and be back together again to pray and to sing and to hear God's word read and preached. May we continue together to confess who Jesus is and to listen to him. And if you're not yet a Christian, you must answer that question about who Jesus is. You must listen to his voice and not your own. The message that was preached on that first Pentecost Sunday still holds true today. Jesus was crucified for our sins. God raised him from the dead. And we must repent and be baptized, and we will receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we must follow Jesus in devoted Christian community. May the Lord graciously grant all of us eyes to see and ears to hear who he is, what he has done for us, and what our response should be. Let us pray. God, we praise you that you have spoken so clearly and in so many ways, in so many ways, time periods and so many situations throughout your word. We thank you for the testimony of scripture that tells us who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We thank you that there are commands like this to listen to him, to listen to his voice in the scriptures. God, may we be a community of people who do that, who Not only hear the words, but go out from here and live them in this world. That we would go out and reflect the truth and the reality of who Jesus is to the broken world around us. That we would let our lights shine for the world to see. God, it is your spirit at work in us that empowers us to do that, to be your witnesses to love one another, to live in community. So Father, would you do that by your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.